Good morning. Dring, 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 dring. Fraud's truth calling. On Liveline, a cautionary tale. And there, for the grace of the gods, go any of us. Sinead phoned Joe. I have a Revolut account. Mm-hmm. And I was out walking my dog. And I got a phone call from uh, Revolut saying this is an automatic uh, message. Uh, there's been suspicious activity on your account from Amazon. If this is not you, please hang up. So because I had been away, I thought it was genuine. So a man came on the phone and told me that there'd been suspicious activity. And he asked me to open my account Mm. on my phone. So when I opened my account on my phone, he was able to tell me absolutely everything that was in my account. So I thought it was genuine because Mm. he could see what I was saying. Mm. And... Basically, I didn't get time to think. And next thing, he started asking me uh, to secure myself from the accounts that were trying to take the money to put in random amounts that weren't in my account, like 15000 to put it into an account. He gave me the account number and press send. And again, because there were amounts of money that wasn't in my account, I thought it was genuine. This basically was going on for the day mm-hmm. and he got me to install AnyDesk software and I asked him, please tell me this is not a scam. He said, look at the top of your phone. You can see at the top it says Revolut Dublin Ireland. And I said, okay. So it must be, you know, true. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't get off the line with him, okay, because this was going on and on and I wasn't getting time to think. Oh, so very easy to fall for. And in this case, Sinead fell hard. How much did he get, Sinead? So there was 7,000 in my, over 7,000 in my account. And by Thursday night, there was 30 euros. Oh, that is vicious. But was all of that money just gone? She contacted Revolut on their online chat. I spent from Friday mornings from about 9am to 8pm that night till I finally got any sort of answers. Uh, They won't reimburse. Okay, hang on. Sorry, Shane. You spent from 9 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night doing what? Messaging back and forth. Messaging back and forth. I couldn't leave my phone. And we getting replies for for the 11 hours, the 12 hours. Yeah, and they kept they kept changing the person I was talking to. You were 11 hours on with Revolut. Yeah, that was only one day. That's not counting the Thursday night. How long were you on with them on Thursday night? Approximately three to four hours. That's their secure contact. That's their secure in-app chat, they call it. Yeah. You're typing away and they're typing back. Yeah. And she was nothing if not tenacious. Is it that they took a long time to reply or that... No, no. They kept trying to fob me off. They kept, okay, one thing was they kept changing the person on the chat. Now, I have counted up, mm-hmm. um, I've counted up the number of different people they kept changing to. So there was 15 different people. I have pictures of all this. I took pictures of all the messages. There was 15 different people. They kept asking me to repeat myself. When I asked to speak to a supervisor, they told me their manager wasn't um, available. Mm. 
they tried to close the chat. And what I know now is if they close a chat, that means they delete the whole chat off your app. So when I told them I was going to go to the newspapers, they kept the chat open. So you you dealt with the full Irish rugby team, 15 people. Yeah, I couldn't leave my house or anything. I'd stay by that phone and not give in. If I had given in and got frustrated like most people would, I wouldn't even have the bit of an outcome I have now. To date, she's got back €1,500. Revolut gave Liveline this statement. Uh, Revolut say, in this instance, we recognise that the in-app customer support offered to Miss Miss O'Reilly fell far short of the standards we expected. We would like to offer severe, sincere, severe, sincere apologies. And because this could so easily happen to any of us, she offered this advice. I always thought I was a highly intelligent person that you I are, would never get are. caught. Yeah. The learning is don't answer calls yeah. from anybody, period. Yeah. If there's an issue, yeah. okay, obviously there's nothing that I can do about Revolut because I can't talk to a person. Yeah. If it's your bank, anything else, you go in. You go in mm. and you talk to a human being. <laughs> don't ring any numbers. Go and talk to a human being. From Liveline, with Ray, Sinead Neulachon, who was off to join the circus. So if you were to run away with the circus, Sinead, oh. what, 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 would you, what would you do? Would you, would, you, would you be a clown or would you be a trapeze mm. artist or would you be I'd, a juggler or what would you be? I'd love to, st- to say that I'd be a stunt artist. I don't know if I'd be able for it. So if, if that didn't go my way, I think maybe a clown. I think you can get away with a lot being a clown because you have that mask up. Yes. You're, you're, you're performing, but you're not Sinead. You're uh, Shinny the Clown or whatever you may be yeah. called. You know, it's kind of like Sasha Fierce with Beyonce. You have that um, protection. It's a shield. It's an alter armor. ego, an alter ego. And all you have to have is that, that, that horn thing, you know, murmur, murmur. And that's just, if things sort of are, aren't going your way, just do that and everyone laughs. <laughs> Spoken like a man who knows nothing about the art of clowning. But he did turn out to be surprisingly supple. Inappropriately so. Go on, what would you be? Wait, well, well I, 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 I did a bit of gymnastics, right? A little bit of gymnastics. Go away. Go, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. All Ireland medals, thanks for asking. No, but, uh, yeah. You're a dark horse, Ray. Dark horse, yeah. I can. I, they, I arrived into the office last week. This is the truth, right? And Jack, who works on one of the other programmes, he said he was going to learn how to do a handstand. And then he said, I bet you you know how to do a handstand. And then before I knew it, right, I was only in the door and they were going, yeah. handstand, handstand, handstand. And I found myself up my hands with my boots off against the boss's door. Ah. Now, he wasn't there. He was off somewhere else. But I was, that's, wow. luckily he didn't come back. Mm, I wonder where he was, as if that man did not have enough on his plate. The Oireachtas Media Committee met with RTE executives and board on Wednesday. Within RTE, an immediate recruitment freeze and up for discussion whether RTE should sell up and leave Montrose. (gasps) All of this in the wake of the effective collapse of the licence fee revenue. Drive Time brought us this particularly tetchy exchange. From the €150,000 payment then... To the ill-fated toy show The Musical, it was raised again by Fine Gael's Brendan Griffin this time, who got a reply from Anne O'Leary. Was there anyone on the board who objected to it at the time? 
Anyone? A lot of an awful lot of questions were asked and they weren't answered. But it still went ahead. Sure, like, I mean, what's the board for? If you're asking questions that I answered, yes, it still goes ahead. What was the point of even asking the questions? This is ludicrous. Like, you're, so you're, looking, the, you're the, looking for 50 million from the taxpayer, and, and uh, I, my license is up for renewal this month. It's 160 euro. I wouldn't trust you by 160 euro. Never mind 160 million. I'd rather go down to Murphy's Barn Bulletins and buy around the drinks. At least I'd know where my, my money went. I, I'd, I'd get more cultural content and I'd get more straight talking from people. Now, that comment was later picked up by staff representative on the RTE board, Robert Short, who called on uh, committee members to choose their language around the licence fee carefully. I do think that we should take it very seriously and I think we should take the payment of the licence fee very seriously. And I was taken aback by your description of comparing it to buying a round of drinks in a pub. I'll uh, be renewing I, my licence fee and I encourage everyone to do it. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Sorry, it's not I'm the politicians very, I'm that are very glad to hear that, Deputy. If you need but to I, own your I, own... And I, will, and I will own whatever Don't actions... Don't go this back and, now on this side of the house. Me, excuse me, Deputy. I'm perfectly willing to own whatever mistakes we made. But I also think that paying your licence fee should be taken seriously by everybody. With clear analysis from Ashling Maloney, political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail, who made the point that this committee hearing had a different tone. This was much different. It really was. It was a marked difference. We had obviously Kevin Backhurst, who wasn't there for all of those previous meetings. It's only his second time appearing before politicians. And what it kind of felt like was a more grim outlay. And the fog has kind of cleared. The initial, you know, the initial explosiveness has cleared. And we're now seeing in the cold light of day the grim reality of the financial situation that has is facing RTE. Like I was talking to some staff, one described it as a sobering hearing. Um, and that it all feels real now, you know, when we're talking about the brass tacks of this, um, you know, the group financial controller of RTE, Mike Fives, um, he was there yesterday and he laid out that um, the, the, the money that RTE are going to need to foot the bill after this controversy. Um, he said that there was already a €7 million Euro deficit projected for RTE for 2023 and that was before the steep decline in licence fee revenue. Mm-hmm. The first week in September saw the largest decrease since this controversy arose and nearly a million euro less TV licence fee sales compared to 2022. By the end of the year there's a projected €21 million euro fall off in licence fee revenue and that money um, is needed but that is also needed on top of the 34.5 million euro that RTE went to government to ask for back in May before this controversy arose and that money Kevin Backhurst uh, laid out yesterday was for things like inflationary costs uh, staff costs um, things that are fixed and were going to befall RTE before this yeah. crisis and he also mentioned that it's for things like elections yes. and covering party thinking yes And she spoke about the competing interests and needs of the committee and the broadcaster. You have the politicians who want to make sure that they're getting value for money for the taxpayer, that they're not allowing these corporate governance failings to continue um, and also um, to make sure that RTE, somebody's held accountable. And I think that's the frustration on some of those politicians' side, that they haven't really, for lack of a better phrase, had a head on a spike that they wanted, that there isn't one person that everyone can point to, that it seems to be um, that people who uh, were key players in this have now left um, or haven't been able to answer questions. But they're 
it's a broader um, cultural issue. And I think that's what they're kind of grasping at straws to try and find someone to blame. And um, But they can't. And then you have RTE on the other side saying, hang on now, you're giving us a kicking, but you, we need a public service broadcaster at the end of this. And if you're going to say, sell off Montrose, or you're going to tell us to move here, or move there, cut this and cut that, that comes with a cut to what you see on the TV screens or what you hear on the radio programmes. So okay. that's, he was um, very much, as you say, at pains to highlight that, that they can kick or to eat as much as they like in these hearings, but it has a consequence when at the end of the day, something needs to give. All right, Meanwhile, on Cayley House, a Cayley band from Melbourne. And yes, that is a didgeridoo. in a bit. Welcome back. On Wednesday, the results of a poll taken by the Garda Representative Association, 84% of the members took part and it was quite the result. Almost 99% expressed no confidence in Commissioner Drew Harris. On the News at One, Ronan Slevin, General Secretary of the GRA, spoke to Brian. Uh, well, to be honest, Brian, we expected a large vote, uh, but even we were somewhat taken aback by the return and the strength of the ballot. But in terms of his future, we're hoping that uh, it's not for us to decide on, on the future of the commissioner. It's That's a matter for his employers. But it is fairly obvious that the members are deeply unhappy with the commissioner at the helm. Now Commissioner Drew Harris described the poll as a kick in the teeth and a bitter blow. But he was supported in his role by Justice Minister Helen McEntee, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and the Garda senior management team. Brian went back to Ronan Slevin on the merits of conducting a poll of this nature in the first place. But if it's not for you to decide on the on the future of, the, of, of Drew Harris as Commissioner, then why carry out a, a ballot of, of confidence in him? Well, Brian, we have been raising a number, a number of issues with the Commissioner and in senior management over the last number of months and years. Um, such issues as the discipline and suspension, the application of the policy, the lack of training for members on the front line, the recruitment, the retention of members within the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, so far this year, we have 96 members that have resigned from the force again, uh, with three months yet to go. 
Um, but the last straw uh, in all of the issues that we have was the impending change to the Rossus, which is being uh, set for the 6th of November. We believe that he has lost the support of the members uh, from not dealing with these issues over a prolonged period of time. But, but the issues weren't on the ballot paper. That's not what you were asking your members to vote on. It was about his leadership of the organisation. It's the ballot papers in relation to confidence in the commissioner and mm. the direction that he's taken with the force. Uh, and all of those issues led to that ballot being held. And yes, the tipping point, those roster changes. He's right. been trying to negotiate with you on this roster issue for several years now without making any progress. That's why he's going back to the old roster. And the, the point that he's making is that this will... Uh, uh, make available an extra, what is it, 500,000 policing hours. It'll put the equivalent of 280 Gardaí back on the beat. Visible, a visible Garda presence. No, it will not. It, it, the same amount of Garda hours will be. Every Guard will still continue to work 40 hours a week as his normal shift. What this will do is reduce the amount of members on the, on the working units on the front line by 20%. Uh, because he's dividing a resource into five. And if he even supplements those units with extra members, those members are coming from specialised units and those services that they provide to the public will then suffer as a result. It has to be accepted that the, the Commissioner does not have the resources at the moment to facilitate this move. And we have offered him a solution in which to maximise the resources available to him for a period of time, be it two or three years, to allow for recruitment to take hold again. And at that stage, if he wishes to re-enter negotiations in relation to a roster, by all means. But right. at the current climate, he just does not have the manpower to do what he's hoping to do. From the news at one, at nine o'clock, a new voice for a few weeks. Maura Duran, and she was quite frank about the first day nerves. This is my first time in a radio studio, so it's a little bit daunting, I have to admit. I was driving down to Galway on Friday with my nine-year-old son, Cal, and I was quite nervous and I was telling him that this is a big deal that I'm doing radio. And he was saying, you know, you do TV all the time. And I said, yes, but it's different. It's a challenge and it's different. And he goes, oh, no, I hope you're not going to turn into puke girl. And I said, what? And he said, puke girl from the Ninja Turtles movie. And then I remembered the character. We went to see it with him about a month ago, the new film. And there was this budding journalist, high school kid, and she had to stand up in front of her school. She wanted to be on air in their TV channel and she threw up. Fast forward to the end of the movie and she has to tell the world that the Ninja Turtles are good guys. They're not the bad guy. So she gets in front of the TV screen again, turns green, gets sick again. But this time she continues on and manages to get through it. So Cal said to me, I guess that's kind of a long-winded story to just say, believe in yourself. So that's what I've done today. And anyone out there facing maybe a new challenge, think the same. You can do it. Carp deem and all the rest. But by Wednesday, well into her stride. But up early for that slot, she was understandably curious about sleep. Do we really need the kind of eight hours sleep a night? And how many hours on average are most of us getting? Not enough, I suspect. But to answer that question, Anne-Marie Boyan, sleep consultant. There was a recent survey done by furniture retailer DFS that said that in Ireland, only 12% of us are sleeping through the night. So that was a shocking figure for me. Um, it also showed that um, Irish people on average are getting six hours, 22 minutes a night. And adults really should be getting between seven and nine hours sleep a night. Now, that does vary per person, but we should be aiming for that. The older we get, the less sleep we'll get. So you'll find over 60, you might be getting less than that. And then teenagers and babies will need a lot more sleep. So don't give 
any teenagers in your house a hard time if they do sleep a lot. Um, but for us adults, we should be aiming for at least seven hours sleep. Anyone with under four hours sleep a night could be classed as biologically drunk on the job. So it is important to try and get that quality sleep. Cut and included simply for the phrase biologically drunk on the job. And you wouldn't want that. So turn over. With Claire, an insight into the grinding nature of poverty. And growing up poor permeates every aspect of your life in ways that are subtle and insidious. As part of End Child Poverty from the Children's Rights Alliance, with Claire, Dr Sharon Lambert from the School of Applied Psychology in UCC. Some of these problems may not be visible. Like We know we have 3,829 children who are homeless across the country. So we can define that group, we can see that group. And what are the implications on those children of that experience in their lives? Well, you've an intersection of of issues going on there. So children who are in homelessness are are statistically more likely to be um, living in a family where it's a parent parenting alone. And that's mostly women. 85% of single headed uh, households are women. So it's very, very difficult uh, if you're parenting alone and you're experiencing homelessness to be able to access the things that you need. And it actually creates this vicious cycle of pushing you further and further into poverty. And outside of the, the you know, the almost 4,000 children who are living in homelessness, there are 90,000 children who are in consistent poverty in Ireland in 2022. That was uh, represented a 40% increase from the year before. And there are 236,000 children who are experiencing other forms of deprivation. Huge numbers. And while a middle-class kid experimenting with drugs is one thing, if you're poor, the outcome might be very different. It's not unusual for teenagers to experiment with drugs. So I suppose the issue is is your relationship with it. What does it do for you? So there are some young people who will experiment with drugs and they will think it's great fun and then they grow out of it and off they go to college. Then there will be other young people whose mental health is really poor. They're really struggling to access services and they might choose drugs and it might relieve the misery of their lives. And then they form a different relationship with that substance. So problematic drug use in young people is a mental health issue. And bearing in mind the waiting list that we have for CAMS, if you're a young person who's who's got a mental health issue, who is using drugs to medicate that, you're going to wait even longer because we don't have the appropriate services for, for young people who are using drugs and have mental health related difficulties. Mm-hmm. So it's a much greater problem for people who have been living in poverty to escape that c- circle. Yeah, it's uh, much more likely to to be diagnosed with a substance use disorder, much more likely to experience drug-related intimidation and a whole load of negative outcomes. Because if you've money and something goes wrong, you can get access to the things that you need. Mm -hmm. If you don't have money and something goes wrong, you're on a waiting list and you have no power and sometimes you lose hope. And even if you do budget, count every penny, the way the system is set up, you'll still pay more. You know, one of the things that you hear people saying is, why don't the poor people save money? Because there's nothing to save. So if you take, for example, if I want to tax my car today, I'll tax it for 12 months because it's cheaper 
to tax my car for 12 months. If I don't have uh, much income, I could be working really hard, by the way, but my rent might be so expensive, I'm not earning enough money to survive. So I will buy my car tax in three-month blocks, which makes it ex- more expensive. Yep. So that's something that the government can do, actually, because that's uh, that's a state agency that's actually punishing poor people. If you're thinking about your electricity bills, is another example. There's lots of people who have such a limited income that every single cent is, is accounted for and they can't take the risk of a direct of an unknown amount in a direct debit coming in at the end of the month so things like electricity bills they tend not to have direct debits so they they do the pay per unit and you pay more for electricity when you use the prepay cards than you do if you're using a direct debit. I could give you loads and loads of other examples, but once you end up in poverty, it is extremely difficult to leave because everything becomes more expensive. Dr Sharon Lambert of UCC with Claire. On Arena, poet Vona Grork and Woman of Winter. This is her version of the Lament of the Hag of Bera from the 9th century Irish. And she feels that this is a departure from what has gone before. There seems to be a great interest in having her be very repentant and having her turn to religion and having her be kind of cowed um, by the fact that she's grown old and and uh, an interest in having her become very quiet. Um, and I wasn't interested in any of that. I thought, surprise, yeah, I surprise, she's a resistant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought she's she. This is a resistant voice. This is a voice that's pushing back. This is a voice that's kind of sassy and that's hard and that's critical, as well as being kind of sensual and remembering the joy of being young and remembering the lovers and being desired and the gifts that they gave her and the success and the body and the hair and all of it. Remembering all of that with great kind of um. And, and not a bit ashamed of it and not a mm. bit repentant, but uh, regretful, I suppose, that it's gone from her, that that life has gone from her, but certainly not remorseful or, and in no way, I don't think, penitent. So I didn't want her, I, I was not sending her off to a nunnery at all. I was pulling her back from the nunnery and saying, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, no need to be quiet at all. But how has Vona Gork reimagined her hag? Such a great word. What I've tried to write is um, a plausible contemporary voice of a woman who has known her own body in very different circumstances, but who also knows it in her current circumstances. And she's not sort of speaking as a as a disembodied voice. Instead, she's she's speaking of a of a body and from a body, and it's it's still a sensual body because she still experiences the world sensually. You know, there is this sense of smell and sight and very rich description. So I think she still enjoys being in the body she's in to some extent, but she regrets that it's no longer young. Yeah, although there, I, I am looking at a little section here where she's talking, she, she's referred to the fact that she sees girls brimful of May, but what is May to me? And she's talking about, uh, does she regret that, that things have changed? Uh, do I mind, she asks, a stanza further down. Oh, but that same hair had sun and moon in it once when I used to be downing nights the way I down drafts of ale. So she was, she was fond of a pint and a bit of crack of an evening. Yeah, I think she suffers from something that a lot of us suffer from as we get older, which is this sense of it was much better in my day. Oh, look at you. You've ruined it all now, you young people. So I think there is there's an element of that. But that I find that kind of charming. From Arena.
with Ray Relationship Advice with Alison Keating and Ray O'Neill. Two people together, similar, possibly bored, but total opposites might not work either. Myself and my partner are complete opposites. Uh, we have different tastes, interests, schedules. Uh, I could go on and on. We're like night and day. Uh, I know the old saying that uh, opposites attract, but the longer we're together, the more these differences are becoming are coming between us. We love each other, but living together just seems like such hard work. Uh, how do we know whether to keep trying or whether to call it quits? Thanks for your help. It's a hard one because it's a bit vague on yeah. what the issues are. But look, um, one of the is you just talk. As long as there's conversation and attempts to relate, then you have a relationship. And you have to be clear on what things can't change and what things are open for change. And that's a really good conversation. Yeah. I think the person's answered the question and maybe they're afraid that they know. How do we know whether we to keep trying mm-hmm. or call it quits? And I'd say that... They really like this person. But actually, if everything is the opposite in every decision that you make from food to furniture to everything, actually, it is hard because your your values being similar does make life easier, genuinely. Yeah. So yeah, and just on that thing, and like, you know, <laughs> that trope uh, about opposites attracting. It's yeah. not true. No, yeah. Well, what do you find from your work? I find people get on better when they share similar values. They don't have to be the same people. You don't have to like the same things with similar values on how you live your lives. I yeah. think that does Yeah, help. it's like a Venn diagram, if I can be a real nerd <laughs> yes. and remind us of really insert maths. There needs to be intersection, yes. but there needs to be separation. There okay. needs to be things you have in common, but there needs to be things you don't have yes. in common. If you're two separate circles, that's not a relationship. Yeah, or even just having the same sense of humour. Yeah. You know, it's that connecting piece. And, it, and if everything's totally the opposite, I wonder, would the sense of humour match? That's a real deal, deal breaker for me now. That's a total No, deal it doesn't matter because I'm happily married. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, <laughs> call me. <laughs> and more relationship advice on Drive Time with Cormac. Ghosting. And if you don't know what that is, well, lucky you. Ghosting is the act of disappearing on somebody without letting them know. So just immediately cutting off contact and standing someone up and never talking to them would definitely fall into that category. But ghosting can cover a broad range of behaviors and people's thresholds might differ a little bit. So, for example, if you're chatting to someone on a dating app for a little bit, you might decide the conversation isn't going anywhere and leave it at that. Most people wouldn't consider that ghosting. However, if you've been chatting for a few weeks, if you've maybe been on a date or two and then suddenly you stop texting, texting back, stop answering anything. Mm. Most people would consider that ghosting. And I think what ghosting does is it causes so much anxiety and confusion and insecurity. And I think most people would prefer to get a message going, do you know what, I had a lovely time. I'm not really feeling the spark, but best of luck, it was lovely chatting to you. But if you don't get anything, you just go into this spiral of thinking, what did I do wrong? Did I I say something terrible? Am I that disgusting that they just had to leave? Isn't that it? It's the ambiguity of it and even if you're not that invested it's just the harshness of no contact that really messes with people so I think everybody is acknowledging that ghosting is terrible but a lot of people also do it as well Relationship expert Roe McDermott and that sense of poof they're gone they're probably dead a hit and run a coma who knows or they just didn't bother to let you know but now a dating app at Bumble wants people to report those who ghost or worse. I wonder would they ban people for ghosting? 
Well, this is the threat. Now, I think having a community guideline of we don't approve of ghosting here is actually great because ghosting is a really negative social trend. And what it does is prevents us from developing the social skills needed to go, you know, it was lovely chatting, but I don't like this. Instead, it lets us avoid an uncomfortable situation too easily, I feel. It stops us from developing boundaries, but it also, most importantly, stops us from developing the skills to take rejection gracefully and not to internalize it too much. So I think a guideline saying we don't do that here is fine. I think having the threat of banning people from Bumble is taking it possibly a bridge too far. Hard note to public flogging then. Oh well. Back in a bit. Welcome back. This week, devastation in Morocco and Libya. Recovery efforts are continuing in Morocco after last Friday's earthquake, with 3,000 people dead, its deadliest since 1960. In Libya, tsunami-style flash floods and collapsed dams in the wake of Storm Daniel. Thousands are confirmed dead and tens of thousands of people are missing. On the news at one, Carol Coleman spoke to Irish Libyan emergency surgeon Dr Salim Langi, who is in the city of Derna. The city is gone completely in the middle. I mean, buildings would disappear. Uh, I go to some. They, I went to some place and they told me there used to be a hotel here. There used to be a buildings here. There used to be streets here. You know, and it's not you don't see a wreckage. You don't see nothing. You just see water. See nothing. I mean, so I saw people. Uh, uh, people talk to me and they told me that the building will be swept away to the sea, like you know, like uh, the whole building is moving. And uh, people screaming inside. Uh, and the whole sea, the color is mud-like, it's red. You can see the mud going into maybe two, three kilometers inside the sea. And you can see cars there. Like It is horrible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm funny thing, not a lot of them are crying. They're still going, walking like zombies. They're in a sh- state of shock. Someone lost six of his brothers. Some the other one, I said, how many do you lose? I said, about... 14, another one, how many years? So just the, just looking, and they're talking to us normally, like, you know? It's not like this. Completely, you don't see nothing in their eyes. And on yesterday's Morning Ireland, Mary Fitzgerald from the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. spoke to Anya, whose introduction highlighted how man-made climate change had been compounded by man-made administrative failures. Dams were not maintained. A forecasting service was not up to scratch. Evacuation order orders not issued and we're now only now seeing the full consequences of that and how it played out in Derna. Is that right? Indeed. When the very heavy uh, rainfall happened on, on Sunday, those dams were built in the 1970s. There are some of my Libyan sources who claim that they haven't been repaired since 2002. So during the Gaddafi era, this period of ne- neglect started. And there were all kinds of questions in recent years about the state of those uh, dams, including people right inside the town who were basically saying this is leaves us very, very vulnerable. This is extremely dangerous and something needs to be done about this. The mayor of Derna is a relative of the head of the parliament I mentioned earlier. So, again, all these kind of connections in terms of a political elite that uh, just basically failed the people of Derna and the people of eastern Libya more generally. From Morning Ireland yesterday. 
Now a gear change. Second captains, the very last of the season, Welsh actor Michael Sheen. Frankly, we could just put the whole hour out. It was golden. But we are forced to cherry pick our bits. Now, not every guest on Second Captains has, frankly, any sporting prowess. Not the point. However, Sheen was a different ball of wax. He was a very good football player, as this next clip will illustrate. When he was 12, he and his family went to Pontons on the Isle of Wight. And there was this kid. I mean, he, he looked like an older man to me. He was probably 15, 16 or something on holiday there with his dad and a <laughs> friend of his. And he had, they had a ball and I was, you know, I was kicking a ball around and... They started playing and we started playing around. And then we played in a kind of inter-pontins team. Yeah. And then, weirdly, there was a match set up between, like, a local team and a, and a pontins team, which was not usually done. And I played in that. And unbeknownst to me, it was a match that had been set up in order to watch me play competitively. And this kid, this 15, 16-year-old kid, was Tony Adams. And his dad... Wow. It was like a scout for Arsenal at the time. And it was his dad who had set this match up, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> and then at the end of it, he went up to my dad and said, look, we'd like to offer him a place at Arsenal at the youth, on the youth team. What? And I didn't, I didn't know this. I heard, I overheard this. When we got back off the holiday, I heard my mum and dad talking to their friends in the front room about it all. And I overheard it. And, um, and my dad said, so, you know, I said, well... We can't come and live in London, you know. I've got the job here and we can't move down. So I don't think that's going to happen. I remember this sort of weird mixture of emotions, like so excited to hear that this had happened and this was what was Mm. going on. But, you know, devastated that it wasn't going to happen. Football's loss, acting's gain. And his own father, certainly an enthusiast. My dad would have loved to have been an actor, but but God bless him, he's terrible. Terrible. Uh, not a good actor and not a good singer but just you know I mean it's it's tragedy really he was born with more desire and passion for performing than you know most actors but none of the talent at all none of which stopped him because it would turn out he had an uncanny resemblance to this actor you don't have to look like Jack Nicholson oh my god do you know you look like Jack Nicholson and my dad didn't even know who Jack Nicholson was he thought he was the golfer Jack Nicholson in fact such was his resemblance to the actor that Sheen's father would go on to have a professional career as a Jack Nicholson lookalike hilarious listen back and this was a cracking hour of anecdotes also up there Anthony Hopkins or Tony. A couple of years ago, I remember him saying, he told me that um, sometimes, because he, he lives in Malibu and uh, on the beach there, and he says, sometimes I miss Patalbert so much that I stay up all night on Google satellite. And I, you know, when you can actually yeah. go through the streets, yeah. the actual streets. And he said, I just go round Patalbert all night on wow. Google satellite. Because where the place where his dad's bakery was is now. Um, I think it's now uh, Evans Pies or something like that. It's, it's another place. Mm. So sometimes I drive past and I'll take a picture of it and then I send it to him just to, you know, just yeah. to let him know it's, it's still there and stuff. Now, this is second captain's sports in there somewhere. But for Michael Sheen, football is always there, whether it's playing at Brian Clough as manager of Leeds United in the Damned United or his work with the Homeless World Cup, which is... Pretty impressive, because not for him, the celeb swanning in for the photo shoot, oh no. In 2019, he became involved in bringing the competition to Cardiff. But then they discovered they were broke. With about, um, 
I think it was about eight weeks to go, something like that. It turned out that um, we had been very, very badly let down. Okay. And uh, there was no money. There was no money to pay for any of it. And he decided to do something extraordinary. There were a lot of people, some of the most vulnerable people all around the world, looking forward to coming to Cardiff to have this sort of transformational, potentially, experience. And... Um, and we would, I was just staring absolute disaster and ruin in the face. And so I had a choice. I, I had a decision to make, which was, you know, I, I walk away from this. I was not personally responsible, you know, mm. financially or anything. You know, I could walk away. Uh, and, and everyone told me to do that. But I just thought, I can't, can't do that. It's not going to happen. So I had to put everything I had in my bank accounts into it right then, just to keep it afloat. Then I had to go and try and convince people... <laughs> to give me money very quickly. People did give me some money, but no Sorry, just on that, Michael, you emptied your own bank account to make sure this thing stayed on the road. Yeah, that was the first part. Then I had to, um, I had a house in Los Angeles and I had the, this house in Wales that I live in because I hadn't sold the house in LA yet. So I essentially put both of those houses up as collateral in order to guarantee that money would be coming down the line. Um, and I, and I went off, I mean, I was, I was doing reshoots on a film with, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And in between takes, I asked if he could give me money, <laughs> if he could give me money. And he said, yes. And I, and I broke down in tears as they said action. So there is mm. one take that is ruined because I'm just crying. I mean, everyone I could possibly ask people were, uh, were sort of amazing, but ultimately I put everything I had and I'm still paying for it now. I'm still in debt now. Um, but I put all, you know, I, but we did it. And I, I will never forget a sunny Sunday morning in Cardiff when all the teams had arrived and it was the first day of it and there was a procession through Cardiff and the sun was shining and all these teams were like playing, beating drums and playing music mm. and waiting to do this procession. Mm. And we walked through Cardiff and I just couldn't believe that it was happening. I could not believe that we had got to that moment. And now, if he has the money, he gives it away. There's no sacrifice involved. You know, when people say, oh, it's good to see someone giving back. And, you know, and it's like, no, that's not, it's not, what, that's not what it's about. It's, this is amazing. This is like... Brilliant. I, I, my, the, when people say, you know, why do you do this? Why wouldn't I do it? Why don't other people do it more who are in this same position? You know, it's just, a, it's an amazing privilege. Now, at this point, we love Michael Sheen and his sporting highlight. Well, tear in your eye. When I uh, moved back to Wales from Liverpool, so I was eight years old, football was my absolute life, like I, like I said. Um, we moved back to Wales, and, I, and it was a really nerve-wracking thing to come to a place at that age. I'd left my friends behind, left my school behind, come back to this place that I supposedly came from mm. but didn't really have a memory of um, and was just obsessed with football. And so I joined the local football club, which was Bagland Boys Club. I was eight years old. I had to play for the under... It only started at under 10s. And there was like about 50 kids who were playing. And it must have been like a sort of trials game. And there were loads of kids being just subbed on and off. And they were probably trying to work it out. And I went on and it was like, this was my moment to, you know, to make my mark on this team, on this area, on this place to kind of say, I'm this, I'm... I mean, I had a Liverpool accent. I had a Scouse accent at this point. Um, and I came on. And I scored a, go a goal with an overhead kick 
in the mud. As an eight-year-old. It was was a spectacular overhead (laughs) kick goal as an eight-year-old. And I will never, ever forget that moment. That is the absolute highlight of everything. Because it wasn't just about the goal, which was spectacular. (laughs) It It was also a kind of like... I'm I'm here and I'm going to survive this. But would all of this be enough to take him to the top of the leaders board? I don't think this has happened before. I think he's done it on a late, <gasps> late charge to become this year's champion in the final show of the series what? with 87 points. Ugh. Michael Sheen, this has been your champion sporting life. Yeah! How about it, Michael? Future. Bringing us to the end of Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Cause you and I